Today I want to talk about the relationship between international law and national law, or to be more exact, between international law and national laws. Because although international law is a single legal system, the same for all countries in the world, national laws vary, and indeed each of the nearly 200 states that are the members of the international community today has its own legal system and therefore has its own approach to how it deals with international law. No two countries are exactly the same in that respect. Now the subject of the relationship between international law and these national laws is one of very considerable contemporary importance. It can be very controversial. The recent cases, for example, about the United States death penalty and the relationship between United States federal law, the domestic law of individual states, and the international law on the subject, including the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations and the rulings of the International Court of Justice, have proved extremely difficult and the subject of a great deal of controversy. But it's important to keep in mind that much of international law happens almost entirely in domestic courts. If you take, for example, the subject of sovereign and diplomatic immunity, almost every case that deals with those is the decision of a national court rather than an international one. One of the cases I was involved in in my career as a barrister before I became a judge was the Pinochet case in England. And although that case turned on points of international law, to what extent did torture constitute an international crime? How did it relate to the immunities of General Pinochet as a former head of state of the Republic of Chile? Those questions had to be decided by the courts in the United Kingdom. They never went before the International Court of Justice or any other international tribunal. So the subject's a difficult one. It's also quite an important one. Unfortunately, the way it's treated in the textbooks tends to be rather dry, rather sterile, an argument between conflicting theories rather than an analysis of what actually happens in practice. What I want to do today is to take a rather different look at the subject and to suggest practical ways in which the relationship of international law and national laws actually works much better than people tend to imagine. Now the starting point in any discussion of international law and national laws is two conflicting theories known as monism and dualism. Monism is the theory that international law and national laws form part of a single legal whole. There is a single concept of law and that it flows through international law into the laws of individual states. On that approach, international law is axiomatically part of the national legal system. The rival theory, dualism, assumes that international law occupies a different level from national laws. International law operates up here, if you like, in the level of relations between states. National law operates at a, on a lower basis in determining the relations between individuals within the state and between the government of the state and its own citizens. Now, neither of these theories is at all satisfactory in explaining what actually happens. The problem with monism is that it overlooks the constitutional and institutional differences between states. It's not just that their laws are different, their institutions are different. The way in which they make law and recognise law is different. For example, a national court in France derives its power to apply any law at all and 
it derives its guidance as to what laws to apply from the Constitution of France. By contrast, a national court in England derives its authority from English law and from the unwritten principles of the English Constitution. Now, those principles are quite different from their counterparts in the French legal system. So not surprisingly, an English court and a French court dealing with a question of how you apply international law, or indeed whether you can apply international law, are going to come at the subject in very different ways. Dualism is unsatisfactory because, first of all, it doesn't really explain what happens in international law today. To talk about international law as exclusively a law between states is to overlook the whole development of the law of human rights, the law on investment treaty relations which now enable an investor to sue a state uh, for expropriation or for unfair and inequitable treatment. It overlooks the fact that much of the regulation of international law today is designed to be applied at a in a domestic, a national setting. And above all, dualism doesn't actually correspond with what national courts say and do in many cases when they're asked to apply a rule of international law. So in practice, I think we have to free ourselves from these two theoretical starting points and look at the matter rather differently. Let's begin by looking at the question of how international law sees its relationship with national laws. Now this is really quite simple and can be illustrated by looking at quite an old dispute, the Alabama case between Britain and the United States. The Alabama was a warship built in Liverpool in the United Kingdom during the American Civil War in the 1860s. She was an exceptionally fast ship. She and her sister ship, the Florida, were being fitted out by agents of the Confederacy in America, the southern states that had seceded from the USA. And they were going to be used as warships, as raiders. The United States government got wind of this, contacted the British and said, you are neutral in this conflict. You therefore have an obligation under international law not to allow our enemies, the Confederates, to fit out warships in your territorial waters, in your harbours. Now the British government went through a series of uh, inquiries into this matter, not terribly satisfactory, partly because the government legal officer to whom the matter was referred had become insane, but nobody at the time realised that except his wife, who was concealing him in his country house to try and prevent the news of his uh, disability from getting out. But the upshot was that the British government realised very late in the day that British law gave no power to the government to prevent the two ships from sailing. The Confederacy, meanwhile, had found out what was happening and sailed the two ships much earlier than anyone was expecting, fitted them out with guns while they were at sea, and they then embarked on a cruise in the case of the Alabama that took it right the way around the world, sinking dozens of US um, ships. The cost, even if you just take the direct cost to the United States of the ships that were lost, was enormous. Now after the Civil War was over, the United States government brought a claim against Britain for an enormous sum of money. In today's uh, money, it would be the equivalent of probably a hundred billion US dollars for the damage done by the, by the two Confederate warships. The case went to arbitration, one of the earliest arbitrations that there has been. And the British government's defence was in part 
we had no power under our own domestic law to prevent these ships from sailing. We can't therefore be blamed for the damage that they did. But the tribunal rejected that argument and held that the United Kingdom as a state had obligations under international law towards the USA and it could not rely upon its own internal national law as an excuse for not complying with its international legal obligations. And that principle of the supremacy of international law, or if you prefer, the principle that a state's obligations under international law cannot be qualified by its own domestic law powers, remains a fundamental principle of the relationship between international law and national law. It's quite important to see how it operates because the British government's defence in the Alabama case really went to the wrong issue. What the British were saying was, we, the British government, are not at fault because our own law did not permit us to act. Whereas the arbitration tribunal is saying, it's not the British government that is the defendant, it's the British state the state as a whole, as a totality, and how you choose to organize yourselves within that state, what powers you give to different branches of the state, to the executive government, to the courts, to the legislature, that's an internal matter and is nothing to do with international law. Conversely, you cannot rely upon it as an excuse for not complying with your international legal obligations. The same issue arises in the US death penalty cases today, where the death penalty was imposed by states within the USA, applying state law. But of course the defendant in the case in the International Court of Justice, or the cases I should say, as there have been three of them, was the United States of America. But in the eyes of international law, the obligation is an obligation of the USA as a state, a member of the international community. How within the USA power is divided up between the federal authorities and the state authorities is not a matter for international law, but like the British position in the Alabama, it cannot be an excuse for not complying with your international legal obligations. So that's the way it appears from the standpoint of international law. And it's important, just as a footnote, to notice that for federal states, this can cause very considerable difficulty. Because in almost every federation, the power to conclude treaties and the power to conduct foreign relations is vested in the federal government. But the power to act on matters like environmental problems is usually vested in the states. Now, if the federation signs up to a treaty which requires the, st the country as a whole to take action on, let us say, cleaning up um, carbon emissions or dealing with uh, endangered species. This goes to the heart of what is often a very delicate political and constitutional relationship between the Federation and the various states of that particular uh, entity. And that can be an extremely difficult issue. Some of the cases from the Australian courts dealing with this point have made clear. Now that's looking down one end of the telescope from the standpoint of international law. Now let's look through the other end and see how national courts would view this issue. I'm going to 
I ask you to excuse me if I use examples mainly from the case law in England, because that's the case law I'm most familiar with. But similar problems arise in a great many other states. Remember that within the state, the national court derives its power from the national constitution. And that constitution, if it's a written one, will almost invariably say what are the sources of law that the court is entitled to apply and what ranking they have. So that normally, in a country with a written constitution, the constitution is the highest form of law and then there are various other forms of law which are subordinate to that. Now, in most countries, even in states that are very open to the reception of international law, international law rules cannot prevail over the constitution in a national court. And that's not surprising because the national court's authority is itself derived from the constitution. But of course, at the international law level, the Alabama principle that you cannot rely on your own domestic law to excuse non-compliance with an international obligation applies even to constitutional principles. So straight away you have a difference of approach. But I think you also have other more fundamental differences which are often perhaps more a matter of legal culture than of anything else. Courts are used to dealing with certain sorts of materials. An English court is used to interpreting Acts of Parliament. It's used to applying common law, the unwritten body of law which the English-speaking countries rely on very heavily. And English courts are used to dealing with the decisions of their own courts, their own kind. They are often far less familiar with rules of international law and the way in which they operate. Let me just give you one example, which wouldn't work out the same way in every country, but it nevertheless illustrates the point. If you're interpreting a treaty, international law is laid down in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. One of the guides to the interpretation of a treaty is the subsequent practice of the parties. You'll find this discussed in Article 31, Paragraph 3 of the Vienna Convention. And therefore you can have a case where even though the text of the treaty suggests one meaning, the subsequent practice of the parties over a period of years leads to a contrary result. The example that's normally given is the provision of the United Nations Charter, which says that a decision of the Security Council requires an affirmative vote of the five permanent members. But ever since 1946, that has been interpreted in practice in the UN as meaning that a, vote, a decision can be adopted if none of the P5 actually votes against. In other words, it's turned a requirement for a positive vote in favour into a requirement that there mustn't be a negative vote against. And that was upheld as a case of interpretation by subsequent practice by the International Court of Justice in the certain expenses and Namibia opinions in the 1960s and 70s. Now, to an English judge, this is completely counterintuitive because English law does not allow reference to subsequent practice as an aid to the interpretation of a statute or as an aid to the interpretation of a contract between private parties. So straight away, when you have a point of treaty interpretation in front of an English judge, you have to begin by explaining that that judge really needs to set to one side all the principles of interpretation that he or she has spent a lifetime learning and applying. 
and look at things in a quite different way. Or if you look at the question of state practice in customary international law, one of the questions that I remember being asked in the Pinochet case was about other examples where officials and former officials of one state had been prosecuted in the courts of another. And I said that there had been a number of instances of this, usually for crimes such as espionage or sabotage. And one of the judges asked me, well, yes, but was immunity ever claimed in any of these cases? And I said, no, not as far as I could see, and that was the point I was making. But it became clear that the judge and I were looking at the matter completely differently. His interest was whether the decision of the national court had created a precedent in the way in which the English courts know that term. And of course, if there was no claim to immunity, there would be no precedent on his basis. I was looking at it in terms of state practice and the creation of customary international law. The fact that no state had ever asserted immunity on those facts was some basis for saying that in state practice there was no such immunity. You'll have to read the Pinochet case to try and work out which of us emerged successful on that point. So straight away you have a fundamental difference in the way in which national courts and international tribunals approach issues of international law. What I want to look at a little bit more closely in the course of this lecture is one or two aspects of that difference. Let's start with some of the ways in which national courts approach questions of international law. Well, I've already said that how that is done depends upon the constitution of the state in question. And if there's no written constitution, it depends upon the constitutional principles of unwritten law. Now, you see this most clearly when you look at the relationship between treaties and domestic law. A treaty, in some respects, looks like a legislative instrument. It is concluded on behalf of a state by whoever that state's legal system empowers to uh, create a treaty, to become party to a treaty. 99 times out of 100, this will be the executive arm of government, the foreign ministry although they may have to secure the agreement of Parliament before they can ratify a treaty. For example, in Germany, the German constitution, the basic law, or Grundgesetz, provides that before Germany can ratify a treaty, the government must secure the consent of the upper house of Parliament. So in other words, the legislature is involved in Germany's participation in, in certain categories of international agreement. Once that has been done, the treaty is then a law of the Federal Republic, and it has a standing below that of the Constitution, but above that of ordinary acts of the German Parliament. In some countries, you have a slightly different arrangement, where a treaty has a status equivalent to that of an act of Parliament, rather than superior to it. But then if you turn to England, and quite a number of countries follow the same pattern as the United Kingdom, it's the same in all parts of the United Kingdom. If you take the position in England or Scotland, then it's radically different. A treaty is concluded by the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office is responsible not only for signing the text, but for ratifying it as well. And although the treaty may be debated in Parliament, unless Parliament actually passes a law to give effect to it, 
the treaty has no standing in English law at all. It's not a part of English law. It can't create rights under English law, and it can't take away the rights of individuals. Now, many people will explain that by saying, ah, well, Germany is a monist country. The United Kingdom, on the other hand, follows the dualist approach. Well, that describes what happens, but it doesn't explain it. The reason why Britain takes a different path from Germany is nothing to do with theories of monism and dualism. It's because in the 1640s, the British beheaded King Charles I when Parliament won the Civil War. Now, the significance of that is that one of the causes of the Civil War had been Charles I and his father, James I's, claim to be able to alter English law by the exercise of their royal prerogative as kings. And that was rejected. And the principle became established as a result of the Civil War and the cases that went before it that the Crown cannot change English law by means of prerogative. Fine, what has that got to do with international law? The answer is that, as a matter of the law of the United Kingdom, it is the royal prerogative that gives the Foreign Minister, on behalf of the Crown, the power to conclude a treaty. So, for reasons of British constitutional history that have nothing whatever to do with theories of monism and dualism, treaties are concluded by a means which cannot be used to change English law. Only an Act of Parliament or delegated legislation passed under the authority of Parliament can do that. The result is that you sometimes find the attitude of English courts towards treaties very difficult to explain to people who come from a system like Germany where treaties are automatically incorporated into domestic law. In the 1980s uh, the International Tin Council uh, found it didn't have the means to meet its various financial obligations. There was litigation against it in the English courts involving many billions of dollars. It was one of the first cases I was involved in as council. Now, there were two treaties involved, the International Tin Agreement setting up the council and an agreement between the Tin Council and the United Kingdom called the Headquarters Agreement, which provided that the Council would have its headquarters in London. But the English Court said neither of these treaties has been incorporated into English law by Act of Parliament. Therefore, we have no jurisdiction to apply them. We can only apply a statutory instrument, as it was called, passed by the British Government to give effect to the Headquarters Agreement, which in certain rather important respects may have been different from the language of the Headquarters Agreement and the International Tin Agreement. Until 1998, the European Convention on Human Rights was not part of English law either. Now, this doesn't mean that an English court can't do anything with these treaties. On the contrary, over the years, the English courts built up the principle that Parliament has to be presumed not to intend to put Britain in breach of its international obligations. So when they had to interpret an Act of Parliament or deal with the evolution of a rule of common law, they would always try to interpret them if they could, so as to conform with a treaty rather than to go directly against it. But that is still quite a long way short of what happens in a jurisdiction like Germany. There could be no question of applying the treaty as such. Similarly, in the United States, if you followed the arguments about uh, the death penalty cases, 
One of the issues there is whether the relevant treaty is what is known as self-executing within the US legal system. Does it create rights for individuals? Because the US courts have developed a jurisprudence that even though a treaty might be part of United States law, it will only confer rights on individuals if the treaty is intended to have that effect, if it is self-executing. Now that is not a question of international law. Like the rules in the English courts, this is a question of US constitutional law. And it's actually quite an important fundamental constitutional question. It's about who has the power to create rules which change the rights and obligations of individuals. And so far, courts in some countries, at any rate, have taken the view that this can only be done by their own domestic parliament. It can't be done by an agreement concluded on their behalf by the foreign ministry following an international conference. And other countries have taken very different views. One thing that uh, does occasionally cause problems, but which in England is now settled, is that supposing a treaty is incorporated into domestic law so that it becomes an act of parliament, the Geneva Conventions, for example, on the laws of war, are attached to a British Act of Parliament, the Geneva Conventions Act of 1957, which makes them part of the law of the United Kingdom. But they are still treaties, and therefore the English courts have recognised that in interpreting them, they have to apply Vienna Convention treaty interpretation principles from international law, and not treat them as though they were interpreting the Income and Corporation Taxes Act passed by Parliament in another year. And that, again, is quite an important difference. Now, that's treaties. What about customary international law, the other main source? Now, most countries will start from the premise that customary international law is automatically part of their own domestic law. Quite what they mean by that often varies much more considerably. In most common law countries, Britain, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Customary international law is part of the local law, but it's treated as having the status similar to that of common law. In other words, it can be applied by the courts, it creates rights, it imposes obligations, but it can always be overridden by Act of Parliament, because in English-speaking countries, the statute nearly always prevails over the unwritten common law, and customary international law is placed in the same position. There's also a little difficulty about what happens with precedent. In common law countries, previous decisions of the higher courts bind the courts in the future. Well, does that apply where they're dealing with rules of international law, which might change? This position had to be considered in England in a case called Trentex in the Central Bank of Nigeria, which I remember all too clearly because it was decided by the Court of Appeal while I was a law student and we were all a little disappointed that the Court of Appeal had chosen to decide it just before our exams. Trentex had a contract with the Nigerian government for the supply of cement. The contract went wrong, largely because Nigeria had seriously over-ordered cement, and following a change of government, there were allegations that these orders had been placed in a corrupt way. And the Central Bank of Nigeria therefore refused to pay on a letter of credit which Trentex held. Trentex brought proceedings in the English courts, and up until that date in 1976, the English courts had taken the view, now by then a very old-fashioned view, I have to say, that international law required 
absolute immunity for foreign states before the courts of other countries. You couldn't sue even for breach of a commercial agreement. But in Trentex, by two votes to one, the Court of Appeal said no, when English courts apply rules of international law, they're not obliged to follow the normal rule of precedent. And therefore they can apply the modern customary international law, which includes, so the court found, an exception to immunity in cases of commercial acts and transactions. But even then, it's important to realise that although customary international law is part of domestic law, it may look very different if you're applying it in a national court from the way it would appear in the International Court of Justice or an International Arbitration Tribunal. We've already seen one example. In most national courts, statute law will prevail over the customary international law, whereas, of course, at the international level, it won't. There's a Scottish case called Mortensen and Peters from the 19th century, where the Danish captain of a trawler was arrested and fined and his ship confiscated because he had been fishing in waters which, under a piece of Scottish legislation, was part of Scottish uh, internal waters, but which the Foreign Office acknowledged that, as a matter of international law, were part of the high seas. The court said, there is nothing we can do about this. The legislation is clear. It clearly provides that these are waters where fishing is not allowed, and we have to inflict the penalty. The following day, the Foreign Office had to return the ship and the fine to the Danish captain and apologise to the government of Denmark. It's a good example of how you get a different result in a domestic court from the result you might get in an international court. Or take the case of Margaret Jones, a much more recent case. Margaret Jones was charged with vandalism in 2001, um, sorry, 2003. She and a number of others had broken into a military establishment and damaged military property, which was, so they thought, going to be used in the imminent military invasion of Iraq. The, they were charged with various offences, and their defence was to say, we acted so as to prevent the commission of another more serious crime, which in some circumstances would be a defence under English law. The crime they referred to was aggression. Now, aggression is a crime under international law, so the House of Lords held. It's a customary international law offence. But they went on to say, although customary international law is part of English law, customary international law today cannot create a new criminal offence. New criminal offences, because they are so serious, and because they require thought about what penalties are to be applied, what rules of evidence are needed, require an Act of Parliament. It cannot be done by the reception of international law into domestic law. Another important difference is that an international court will always consider that it can decide a point of international law. But a domestic court, a national court, might feel differently about some issues of international law. Sometimes the national legal system requires that certain issues be decided not by the government, no, sorry, not by the courts, but by the government of the state in question. In Britain and in quite a number of other countries, one example of that is the question of whether a particular entity is or is not a state. That tends to be decided not by the courts, but by a certificate from the Foreign Office or the Prime Minister's Office. Um, for example, in the late 19th century, a student at the University of Cambridge 
um, who was uh, the Sultan of Johor, one of the Malay states, um, was sued for breach of promise of marriage, a type of action that no longer exists, um, by a lady called Miss Miguel, who claimed he had offered to marry her. The question arose of whether he was entitled to sovereign immunity as a head of state. Now, Johor at the time was under British protection. It was part of the, the British Empire in Southeast Asia. And therefore, it wasn't an independent state in the sense in which we now understand the concept of statehood. Nevertheless, the Foreign Office certified that it was a state for these purposes, and the courts treated that as conclusive. Another question which courts are often rather reluctant to get into, but it is a question of international law, is whether the country is in a state of war or not. Generally speaking, they will defer to the executive on that. There was a particularly strange example of this in an English case just after World War II, a case called Kuchenmeister. Mr. Kuchenmeister was detained as an enemy alien under wartime legislation in Britain. But by now it was late 1946, and he took the view that he could no longer lawfully be detained because the war was over. He'd read about it in the newspapers. So he went to the courts and sought his release on the grounds that, there being no state of war, there was therefore no basis for his detention. The court said, we can't decide the question of whether Britain is still in a state of war with Germany or not. We'll have to ask the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office certificate said that there had been no peace treaty, and therefore the state of war between Britain and Germany still existed, even though it was now over a year since Hitler's suicide and the unconditional surrender of German armed forces. So that's a good example again of how some questions national courts are just not prepared to determine. And again, particularly in common law countries like Britain and America, you have a concept that certain types of question are not justiciable, as the American courts would tend to say they are political questions, even though they're questions of international law, and therefore they cannot be determined by the national courts. Now, if you add together the rule about the supremacy of the Constitution and most of the time of statute law, the difficulty about precedent and the use of past case law, and the fact that there are some rules of international law, or some questions of international law, which national courts consider to be for the executive rather than for them. The result is that although national courts may think that they are applying customary international law, what they are actually doing is applying something very different from what the uh, International Court of Justice would apply in those circumstances. It's rather like those fairgrounds which had um, mirrors. They were very popular when I was a child. And if you stood close to the mirror, you looked very short and very fat. But if you stepped back a couple of paces, you looked very tall and very thin. Unfortunately, as the years have gone by, I now have to take rather more steps back from the mirror to get this effect than I used to. What you get in a domestic court is very often one of these fairground mirror distorted images of international law. It is customary international law, but it isn't the same customary international law, or at least it's not being applied in quite the same way as it would be in an international court. Now that's the position looked at from the standpoint of the law itself. Just let me say a word or two about culture. I mentioned earlier that some of the rules of international law are counterintuitive for domestic courts, like the rule that subsequent practice is an aid to interpretation. 
uh, or what exactly constitutes state practice in the formation of customary international law. But there can be other difficulties as well. International courts may be uh, much more familiar than their national counterparts with such materials as, for example, reports of the International Law Commission, the um, reports of bodies like the Committee Against Torture, general comments of the UN Human Rights Committee. These are, are not really the working materials of most national judges. And yet they are important when you come to try and ascertain the content of public international law rules. So it was, it's very encouraging when you get a national court that is willing to look at these with some, some care and some interest. In one fairly recent English case, Jones and Saudi Arabia, a case about sovereign immunity and the prohibition on torture, um, in a sense a, a legacy from uh, the Pinochet uh, decisions ten years earlier. The House of Lords, the then highest court in England, looked at an International Law Commission commentary a United Nations treaty that had not yet entered into force, uh, reports from the Committee Against Torture and the UN Human Rights Committee, as well as a wide range of secondary literature on international law. That way you have a much better chance of the National Court applying international law in the same way that an international tribunal would do so. And I think in many countries there's been a very considerable change in attitudes to how you deal with international law over the space of the last few years. One last word before we finish. We've focused so far on how national law is, deals with questions of international law. But a word is necessary about the other side of the coin, how international courts and tribunals deal with matters of national law. Now we've already seen the Alabama principle about supremacy, but there's much more to it than that. The first thing to realise here is that some areas of international law are almost exclusively applied by domestic courts. Sovereign immunity is one of them, although there is a big decision of the International Court of Justice on sovereign immunity, um, the uh, arrest warrant case in 2002, and there is in fact another case pending before the International Court of Justice about which I obviously cannot say anything. Almost all the case law on sovereign immunity is to be found in the domestic courts. And until the conclusion of the UN Convention on State Immunity at the beginning of the 2000s, there was no international treaty on the subject either. So where did you look to find out what is international law on state immunity? The answer is you have to look at the decisions of national courts and at the statutes passed by national parliaments. They're the raw material, they're the state practice which tells you what the content of public international law on this subject is, or at least they're a large part of the state practice which tells you what the content of international law is. National laws are part of the practice of states. They therefore contribute directly to the formation and development of customary international law. They can also be an extremely effective guide to the interpretation of treaties. In the case of many international agreements, the only real guide to how they are to be interpreted or to how they are being interpreted in practice is to be found in the decisions of national courts. Now at the time I started practicing international law, quite a long time ago, one English judge confronted with a part of the Tin Council saga said about international law, oh yes, I know what international law is. English law, he said, is law. Foreign law is fact. International law is fiction. 
I don't think you would find that attitude in any national court today. You certainly wouldn't find it in any of the national courts that I've appeared in. I think what you now find is a much greater willingness on the part of national lawyers to be receptive to international law, to make use of it, and to apply it within their own legal system. And that is a development which is enormously encouraging for all of us.